As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. The Bible and Same-Sex Marriage. A talk by Dr. Robert Tilley. Look, what I might do, first of all, is open in prayer. So, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I pray, Lord, that both I and Jeremy will speak faithfully to your word, but also graciously and charitably, and that all of us, to some degree, may be a little bit more illumined as to the whole question of same-sex marriage. And we pray, given this has been under the auspices of the Seat of Wisdom College, that we pray to Our Lady, who is Seat of Wisdom. Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now, the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. My name's Robert Tilly, Dr. Robert Tilly. I lecture at the Catholic Institute of Sydney, which is out at Stratsfield, not to be confused with ACU, by the way. We're funded by the Archdiocese primarily to train seminarians, but we have lots of laity, and not just Catholic laity, doing university degrees with us. So that's who I am. Well, to get to the subject proper, I want to stress something here. What I'm trying to do is to clarify some of the issues Recently, the ABC website, well, it still does, hosts some biblical takes on same-sex marriage. In favour by Amy Jill Levine and Robin Whittaker, and in turn, these have generated responses, and these are on the website, not least by Lionel Windsor of, actually, Moore College. A very good response. There are other links and postings on the ABC website, not least by John Milbank. And again, a very interesting and I think a very illuminating post. The thing is, I don't want to repeat these arguments. I don't want to just have this talk to be simply, what does Leviticus say? What does Romans chapter 1 say? I actually want to talk about the very metaphysics of the Bible, I want to discuss one of the main arguments first of all, and that which turns on the passage like Leviticus chapter 20 verse 13, the command in Israel, this is in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the holy sacred book of Jewish people and Christians for that matter. In Leviticus chapter 20 verse 13, we're told that in Israel's those who do homosexual acts must be put to death. Now, first of all, I'm going to use the phrase homosexual acts for a very specific reason, which hopefully will become clear in the course of this talk when we come to no other than the major theoretical historian Michel Foucault and questions as to the nature of what is called anti-essentialism. It is argued that just as very few of us actually hold that those who do homosexual acts should be put to death, 
Therefore, in the church, we should change certain other things, such as marriage, such as same-sex marriage. Just as it's been pointed out that the Torah also prescribes a death penalty for adultery, for breaking the Sabbath, among other violations, and just as no longer, as far as I know, do either people in the church or the synagogue say that we should have the death penalty for those things. Consequently, people will argue, well, if those can change, why then can't marriage change? Well, this is where we really need to clarify some issues. First of all, marriage is not in the same category as specific laws. Something I'm going to come and explain later on. But first of all, what we do need to understand is that not all laws fall into the same category. They do not share the same basis. For example, the prohibition about eating shellfish. That is stuff, food that is non-kosher. Plainly, those are different laws compared to laws against adultery or other such laws. Punishments as well can change. Punishments for violating a law may change. But what the law is designed to protect does not change. Furthermore, many of the laws in Torah, that is, at least the laws given at Mount Sinai, to Moses and thereby to all of Israel, many of those laws are specific to Israel. Dietary laws, like I mentioned, laws about kosher. Priestly laws, those laws that have to do with the Levites. Pollution laws, those laws that deal with Levites and other Israelites. All those laws are specific to Israel but other laws are not specific to Israel. In other words, you will find throughout the ancient Near East, you will find law codes that also prohibit murder, just as Torah does, that prohibit stealing or even prohibit adultery and, to a degree at times, prohibit homosexual acts. There are also laws regarding conquest and slaves that are in Torah that are also shared by other societies. Even circumcision is not unique to Israel. Circumcision we find very early on in Egypt. And yet the use of circumcision is unique in Israel. The use of circumcision is unique in Israel. Why? Because it becomes a definite covenantal sign of the specific relationship between Israel and her God. Even the rainbow, which I suppose is very much at the heart of today's debate, when we look at the Noah covenant, it does not mean that the rainbow suddenly came into existence at that moment. It simply means that a pre-existing thing was turned into a covenantal sign. All of these things are very essential and necessary if you are to understand the issues around same-sex marriage 
and those arguments against it. When we speak of the ancient Near East, we're speaking of something close to 2,000 years. Even some people say three or 4,000 years. We could say from the birth of ancient Sumer, through all the way, some people would argue, to the birth of our Lord. So in other words, we're talking about an incredible range of time and cultures in the ancient Near East. And again, I want to stress something I mentioned a little bit earlier. Although there are many laws that are in common that we find in the Moses law, we find elsewhere throughout the ancient Near East, the punishments accorded those laws are not necessarily the same. Consequently, punishments for stealing may not be the same in one culture as in another. We have that same thing today, of course. Many cultures prohibit stealing for obvious reasons, but they have different punishments. As might be expected, in recent years, a lot of, well, a fair bit, let us say, of contemporary scholarship on ancient Near Eastern history has focused on the question of homosexual acts. The issues there are some feel that it is largely ignored across the ancient Near East, others that it is present and that it is that homosexual acts are deemed illicit, and many argue that homosexual acts are deemed illicit like adultery is by reason that it operates outside of marriage that it is sexual acts outside of marriage. This then raises a question, some might argue, well then if we allow for same-sex marriage, it will be within marriage, won't it? So it'll be okay. Well, this is what we have to explore a little bit more. The Torah, the laws of Moses, the laws given to Moses at Sinai, treat of these illicit acts like adultery, homosexual acts, and things like incest, sorry, and bestiality, it treats of these illicit sexual acts in a very severe fashion. A very severe fashion. Thus, Leviticus chapter 18, verses 19 to 22, homosexual acts are deemed illicit, but here's the interesting thing. In that passage, they are placed side by side with acts of incest and indeed having sex with a woman in, quote, her menstrual uncleanliness. All of these things probably strike us as being rather odd and rather strange. We are told in the Torah that other nations in Canaan practiced these things and more, and because of that they were going to be cast out of the land. And yet, it does seem quite clear that within Israel, as far as Israel is concerned, the severity of the punishments are very severe indeed. Why? That's a real issue. Look, Many scholars speak about disturbing passages in the Pentateuch, and so they should, because there are disturbing passages. 
But the issue that we have to ask ourselves is why this severity of punishment? Why were homosexual acts going to be punished by death or adultery for that matter? Here's the fascinating thing. We are not animals. When people say we should treat sex as just as animals treat it, as if it were when the female of the species is in heat, well, so what? Do it in the middle of the road, as John Lennon said. But that's the thing, is we're not animals. As far as I know, no animals have sexual hang-ups or problems the only problem an animal has, especially if it's a male, is if it's a dominant male and can get its way over the other males. It's a straightforward matter. But sexual, sex, sex is not a straightforward matter for human beings. And this is what human history testifies to. It is a very serious matter. And this, I would argue, is also reflected in the sincere, and I do think it's sincere wish, of many who are gay to be included in a societal acceptance of marriage. I am voting no, and I think you should vote no, but that should not blind us to the fact that there are many who are absolutely sincere in their wish for that. When we think about the 1960s and 70s and even indeed the 80s when there was a push to destroy marriage, well, the turnaround is quite remarkable. And in that way, it also testifies to the fact that sex and thus marriage are very profound and important things. Sex is profoundly important and that's why from the very beginning of human history, from the very beginning of human history, it has been felt that sex needs to be restrained, channeled, and that into a covenantal legal bond of marriage, however we might understand that. Most, if not all, societies have seen marriage and family as a basic unit of the state. Hence, most governments have, and still do, even in our culture, privileged families with tax breaks and like matters. Not least because the family really is the location of the unity, really, of society. This seriousness, which is reflected in the severity of the laws of Torah, this seriousness is an expression of how human society, since our historical records begin, of how profound sex is. The Torah, indeed the whole Bible, assumes this seriousness and reflects upon it. But in fact, it does something more. The Bible takes <coughs> sex to a whole nother level to a whole nother level. Let me put it like this. In theology, we have what is called natural theology. Natural theology refers to the revelation of God in and through creation to all people. And that's natural theology, and often tied to natural law. Natural theology is a revelation of God in and through creation to all peoples. But what we have in the Bible, in the church 
is supernatural theology, which does not mean ghosts or superheroes. What it refers to is a way in which that which is natural is elevated and perfected. And this very much has to do with marriage. Marriage in the Torah and throughout the whole Bible is used as an expression of God's covenantal relationship with Israel. Marriage in Torah and the Old Testament and the New Testament, well, in the Old Testament, is elevated into being the image, the prime image, the privileged image of God's relationship to his people Israel. Given the fact that Israel was to be a nation of priests, by which is meant Israel was to be a priestly nation that represented all of humanity and thus all creation, given that Israel was to be the covenantal representative of all humanity, that therefore means that the privileged and supernatural relationship of God with humanity is imaged in terms of marriage. Israel is presented again and again as God's fiancée, God's bride, God's wife. Of course, the prophet Hosea is the best example of that, but you will find references to this in many of the prophets. It's a theme taken up in the New Testament as well, especially in Ephesians chapter 5, which I'll read a little bit of. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, as is, and is himself its saviour. As the church is subject to Christ, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, for he gave her, himself up for her that he might sanctify her, cleanse her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, that also she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves also himself. For no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. For this reason, and this is where St. Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is a profound one. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The bride of Christ is a church. In Revelation chapter 21 verse 2, the church is depicted as a new Jerusalem coming down as a bride from heaven to marry her groom, Jesus. Thus, not only is marriage in the Bible accepted as being fundamental to human society, but let's remember that understanding of marriage is almost a universal understanding. It's what we would call a natural theology that all nations and cultures understand. But the Bible, as I said, takes it further, elevates it, 
Not only is marriage accepted as being a fundamental of human society, but it is so because it instantiates, it reflects the nature of the relationship of God to creation through his people, his bride, Israel, and then the church. But it might be objected that same-sex marriage is not about destroying marriage, but in fact supporting, defending, celebrating it. And I think in all sincerity, many who argue for same-sex marriage do sincerely believe that. And when one sees how prevalent divorces, marriage breaks up, dysfunction, and of course the sins and evils of contraception and abortion, then marriage certainly does need support, defending and celebrating. But again, this is where we have to step back a bit and we have to ask again, why is sex so profound? And a short answer is, is because though it may sound surprising to you, it is because sex, and thus sexual difference, reflects and expresses the very being of creation. This is going to bring us to an issue that possibly to some of you is going to sound a bit obscure, but believe me, this is fundamental to many of the debates today, not just same-sex marriage. It's this. It has to do with the nature of sexual difference. And we should ask, is there an essence to sexual nature? Is there an essence? And by that I mean something that beneath all the appearances always stays the same. Is there an essence proper? Or is sex to be understood in an anti-essentialist way? That is a non-essence way, an anti-essentialist way. That anti-essentialist understanding is a fundamental understanding, certainly to our world, and that especially since the late 70s, interestingly enough, concomitant with the rise of late, or we might say hyper-capitalism. It is what's called anti-essentialist thinking, and I want to explain something of this because it is vitally important. Since the 1970s, well especially since the 70s, and especially in the 1980s, there was a falling out among feminists. Old-style feminists like Germaine Greer have been pilloried for their so-called essentialism. Germaine Greer will say, look, people who are in transition, transsexuals, do not become women because to be a woman is not just about having your genitals lopped off, as she puts it, but there is an essence to being a woman that a man can never be. And for that, to this day, Germaine Greer, among some other all-star feminists, are pilloried far more violently, I might point out, than Christians have been. In fact, the debates and arguments within feminism have been far more savage and nasty than anything we've seen as yet. The same thing it may interest you to know in a gay community. In the late 80s, early 90s, with the birth of what was called performance theory and then queer theory, especially by the figure of Judith Butler, was very much this anti-essentialism. And in fact, those advocates of queer nation, of queer theory, argued 
that there is no biological essence to being gay. In fact, they would argue, I can be gay today, straight tomorrow, by the next day, and so on and so forth. In other words, it's all fluid. That's why in the more radical sphere of the LGBTQ, etc., community, there is a debate still going on between essentialists and anti-essentialists. Some will argue there's a biological essence, everything is fluid, open, and transformable, or a biological essence, sorry, that is fixed, or is it fluid? In other words, it comes down to a metaphysics. Is there a substantial essence and thus identity to things? And this explains the biblical view. It's why societies in history have hedged sex in through social norms, traditions, theologies, social constructs, laws and punishments because they have held to an essentialist view. And their argument is that that essentialism must be protected. Before we return to the Bible, I just want to go a little bit more into this and that by the historian and gay writer Michel Foucault. I think one of the preeminent and a great historical theorist. In his multi-volume work, The History of, History of Sexuality, Volume 1, Foucault very famously wrote about sexuality. This is why I refer to acts. And you'll see why in a minute. Foucault pointed out that the idea of sexuality is an 18th 19th century invention. And you might go, well, hang on a minute. People have been having sex a long time before that. Well, yes, and that's not what Foucault was talking about. What he was saying was that with the birth of modernity proper, when it proceeds on, a new forms of political power and governance arise. And these are associated with the secular enlightenment and the secular enlightenment is anti-clerical, rationalistic. At least it claims to be rationalistic. And it claims that it takes a scientific attitude to things. And what they started to do was to claim no longer about sexual acts, but sexuality. This is when the term homosexuality is, comes into use as a so-called secular, scientific, rationalist medical category. On the ABC website, I think they confuse sexual orientation with sexuality, when, and I think they're alluding to Foucault, but if they are, they've got him wrong somewhat. What you have to understand is this. Foucault's argument went like this. Prior to the rise of the Enlightenment, of modernity, discussion concerning sexual acts was not about homosexuality or sexuality. It was about morality. It was about morality. It was not about if or you're of an essence that is homosexual or you're an essence heterosexual. It was about morality. 
An act of sodomy, and that's a term that was used and that Foucault uses because it was a term used in the pre-modern, early modern period. The act of sodomy was wrong by reason of the act, not of a so-called sexuality. However, with the rise of so-called scientific rationality, there was a medicalization of morality where this enlightened scientific rationalism the act no longer is a moral act, but becomes an innate disposition, a kind of essence, but not a biblical essence, not a pre-modern essence, but an essence of a scientific, modern, enlightened rationality, so-called. Now, let me make it clear, Foucault was an anti-essentialist. He did not hold to the scientific medical line from the Enlightenment period, nor for that matter did he hold to a pre-modern or moral line. What occurred after Foucault was the argument of binary oppositions. This was the idea that male-female was a binary opposition in which there was a kind of competition between the two sexes that would only end in the dominance, the patriarchal dominance of the female. So the argument was, if we get rid of any idea of essence of male and female, if we become anti-essentialist, then there'll no longer be any binary opposition and everything will be fine because there'll be no longer any competition. Again, I apologise if it sounds a bit obscure, but in fact... All of this is at the basis of a lot of this argument. Informing same-sex marriage, gender ideology, the idea of 50 different genders, so on and so forth, and a good deal else is this tension. Not just between religious and secular, but between feminism, old style and new style, even within gay theory and law, culture and religion. Is there an essence or nature proper to things, or is everything anti-essentialism? Is everything malleable and plastic because there is no essence proper? Well, in our capitalist society, we'd like to think so, because then you can make it a commodity. Is everything free because there is no definition proper, because there's no essence proper? See, this is a classical distinction. In the ancient world, the Aristotelian, indeed Platonic, prior to that, and the church, freedom is defined as a freedom to accord with your nature proper, with your essence proper. But if there is no essence, your freedom is arbitrary. The next question is this. If there is an essence proper to being human, what is it? Is it reflected in sexual difference? The so-called binary opposition of male-female. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, St. Paul wrote, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. You remember... In the second account, Adam is created alone. It's not good for him to be alone. So God makes a woman out of the side, out of his rib. He wakes up and goes, at last, this is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. And then we're told of the institution of marriage. The two shall become one flesh. 
In a like manner, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 9, Jesus opposes divorce by quoting the same passage from Genesis, chapter 2, verse 24. The two shall become one flesh. Have you not read, says our Lord, that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus is referring here, of course, to Genesis 1, verse 27, when in the creation narrative in chapter 1, God creates everything as it were monovocally. Let there be light, there is light. But when it comes to the creation of humanity, suddenly the tone, the voice changes and it's of a communal, de deliberative nature. Let us make man in our image, male and female, he created him. It's a play upon single and duality. He created him, singular, male and female. In other words, sexual difference is of the very image of God. Sexual difference is of the very image of God in Genesis 1.27. And that this is reflected in the act of marriage. For the two shall become one flesh. And yet they are still two, but they become, as it were, one flesh. Marriage in the Bible reflects the very constitution of humanity not as a binary opposition, but as a binary communion. Not as a binary opposition where the two are opposed, though in this fallen world that often happens to be the case, but as a binary communion where each are equally constitutive of the other. In other words, difference and otherness are absolutely necessary for the integrity of humanity not least in the integrity of the revelation of God to us. Marriage expresses the very essence of humanity as the image of God insofar as it expresses how otherness and difference form a unity. Now you might think, well, so what? Well, in point of fact, in Greek philosophical thinking, in a large part of it, privilege was given to absolute sameness. So, for example, in that height of Greek, and you could say Roman metaphysics in Plotinus, what you find is the alone to the alone, the absolute same, where the idea that otherness and difference is somehow awful and that the real true being is absolute sameness. But the biblical metaphysics is absolutely opposed to that. Otherness and difference are equally constitutive of unity of being just as sameness is. And of course, when we think about what we in Christian theology understand of God that has been revealed through our Lord, that makes perfect sense. The Trinity and the Creed, three persons yet one substance. And if you think that the persons are somehow make-believe, you are a heretic. Three persons yet one substance. In biblical metaphysics, otherness is not annihilated. It is not a logic of sameness. Otherness and difference are absolutely fundamental, not just to the nature of created being, not just to the nature of humanity, but to the very nature of God. There is a binary communion of male and female, a unity in and through difference, and that this is expressed in sex. 
in humanity. That is why sex is not just a merely animal thing. Sex is the most profound element in humanity. And sexual difference is at its basic fundament. It is the image of God. Marriage expresses and complements the sexual differences, the male and female that is the very essence of humanity, and this in turn images and reveals God. Now if we recall, St. Paul relates marriage to the relationship of humanity through the church to God, to a sacramental unity of God, the creator, to that which he has created out of nothing, namely us, all of creation. It is a unity in and through otherness. If you think of the sacraments, that is what a sacrament is. A sacrament is a symbol that makes really and truly present that which it symbolizes, and yet it still is a symbol. It's like a sign. A sign is only a sign insofar as it points to what it signs. If it stops pointing to what it signs, it's no longer a sign. It just becomes same. It is an essentialist position. The Christian, the Catholic view is an essentialist position. But it's not an essentialist position that arises out of the 18th, 19th century Enlightenment rationality. And that's a problem. I actually think that a fair bit of the argument used by those who oppose same-sex marriage is actually using the language and argument of actually 18th, 19th century secular theorists. When we hear talk of Sodom and Gomorrah, we see a populace that is not gay in the way that we understand that term. It is a populace that has given itself over to homosexual acts. But it does not say these people have a homosexual sexuality. As we see, and as people have pointed out in Ezekiel chapter 16, 49 to 50, the prophet says this is why Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, because they had a surfeit of food and they did not feed and share it with those others who were starving. And they did other like abominable things. Just as prisons today you would not call gay communes, even though homosexual acts and rape are prevalent. And here I want to finish by referring to Romans chapter 1, which is one of the major passages used. I'm only going to skim read it. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness by those who through their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is made clear because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, his eternal power and deity have been clearly seen in the things which he have made. That's natural theology. That's telling you everyone has had a clear revelation of God throughout human history. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Senseless minds were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of God, the immortal God, for images resembling mortal men or birds or animals or reptiles. In other words, it's talking about the fundamental fall into idolatry. The idea 
that we turn away from the clear representation of God as other and instead we confuse the image of God for mortal things and we start to worship created things. And the reason we do that, as St. Paul goes on to say, is because there's a desire for sameness. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Women exchanged natural relations to unnatural, and the men likewise gave up natural relations and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men, receiving in their own persons a due penalty and their error. Now, here's the point. When we, what St. Paul is doing there, is generally acknowledged, is like a summary of the fall of human history. When we read the Old Testament, nowhere does it necessarily draw a parallel between homosexual acts and injustice. The passage in Ezekiel, possibly, but again and again through the prophets, whatever people's sexual acts are, they are more than capable to act unjustly. So what is St. Paul doing there? He's doing an argument. He's showing you that the desire of the same that is seen in homosexual acts, which literally means a sexual desire for the same, that desire is expressive of a fundamental act of idolatry. And thus, he goes on to say, they did not give acknowledge God, God gave them over, they became filled with all manner of wickedness, evil covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, deceit, malignity, they are slanderers, haters of God's boastful, of disobedient to parents, foolish, heartless, ruthless, and so on and so forth. Now clearly all those things describe, as St. Paul goes on to say, all humanity, all of us. What he's telling you is the desire for sameness is destructive of human communion. And this desire for sameness will express itself in homosexual acts, but it will also express itself in adultery, incest, bestiality, fornication, and a host of other things. It will express itself in a social breakdown. In other words, what St. Paul is doing is expressing the biblical theme of the respect and the necessity to preserve otherness and difference. St. Paul is giving us a potted history. The sense of the otherness of God is lost by confusing God with creatures. And this desire for sameness is expressed, first and foremost, in acts of sex. In short, again, we meet with the profundity of sex. People culpably distort their understanding of God, and they do so in order to exploit and rip off others. And of course, the church has not itself been foreign to doing that as well. We see throughout the Bible, both Israel and the church have the visible people of God have been likewise beset by such sins. And in fact, in that Romans passage, Paul ends up in chapter 2, verse 1, turning it on the members of the church in Rome. Therefore you, O man, are without excuse. 
The desire for the same is expressed in all of us, in all fallen humanity. Our use of freedom becomes anti-essentialist, becomes arbitrary, becomes exploitative. Consequently, we can see why the laws in the Torah against homosexual acts and others were so severe. Because what it was telling them was that sexual acts are not just merely animal acts. They are fundamentally important. But here's the point. The punishments do not necessarily carry on. In fact, what the Pentateuch shows, that for all the severity of the laws, for all of the punishments God gives, it doesn't work. The people do not change. They, in fact, get worse. And again and again, the prophet's hope and promise is that there will be a new heart given. That's why we should no longer, I'd argue, hold to the death penalty. It's why we should no longer hold to the severe punishments of Torah, because they failed as punishments. They could not change people's hearts. Marriage is one of the means by which the Bible teaches, if not the means, that we can accord ourselves to our essence proper. And that necessitates a binary communion. I want to stress here and finish by saying that the aim of this talk is first and foremost to say to you that the Catholic, the Christian position against same-sex marriage is not a mere case of prejudice. Unfortunately, to many Catholics and Christians, it is just a case of mere prejudice, and they are ignorant and indolent and do not understand why it is the church takes this position. It has to do with metaphysics. It has to do with the very constitution of being, the very constitution of being human. And it has to do with the very image and revelation of God, the Holy Trinity. Is there an essential nature to humanity? And is that essential nature that which is clearly revealed in the Bible? Well, yes, it is, I would argue. Or is everything anti-essentialist and thus malleable, plastic and able to be commodified? That was a talk by Dr. Robert Tealy on The Bible and Same-Sex Marriage. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.